One night in 1950, our first senior minister, George Heaton, had a bad dream. You might call it a nightmare. He dreamed that the great Alastian theologian, artist, and physician, Albert Schweitzer, came to Myers Park Baptist Church one Sunday morning and expressed he wanted to join our church. In the dream, Dr. Heaton said, I'm sorry, Dr. Schweitzer, you can't belong to this church because your baptism was by the spoonful and ours is by the gallon. At the time, our church had a membership policy that required everyone who wanted to join to be baptized by immersion, which means to be literally dunked underwater, even if they had already been baptized in another Christian church. Dr. Heaton was so disturbed by this dream that he rose to the pulpit the next Sunday and shocked the members of our congregation by declaring that he believed baptism of any kind was not a requirement for membership at Myers Park Baptist. His declaration was a direct challenge to our church's policy and tradition, and it set off a controversy among church leaders who took it upon themselves to distribute copies of Heaton's sermon to every member of the congregation. The members went into a frenzy. Some wanted to run George right out of town. Most were simply confused, however, and wondered what Dr. Heaton meant. Was he demanding the church change its policy? Was he declaring that he would not comply with the church's tradition? What was going on? Finally, there was a deacon's meeting, and afterwards, Dr. Heaton wrote to the congregation and said, there is no reason for confusion. The Board of Deacons voted last night to reaffirm the church's current membership policy, which requires immersion. This procedure will be followed by this minister until it is changed by action of the congregation. He then said, I declare that such a policy is not in accord with either the spirit of Christ or the early church. But the opinion of this minister does not determine the policy of the church. Only the congregation can determine its policies. He went on to say, this is not the first time that people and minister have disagreed, and I hope it will not be the last. I am not here as your minister to tell you things you would like to hear. Our church is too strong to be broken by differences of opinion. We are engaged in too large a task and have achieved too great an influence in Christendom to forfeit our leadership by destroying ourselves through any differences. Eventually, our congregation amended that membership policy to remove the practice of immersion or any kind of baptism as a requirement for membership in our church. But it would take 10 years from Dr. Heaton's sermon for that to take place and 16 before we formally desegregated the church by declaring our membership open to all races in 1966. Two years later, in 1968, the Mecklenburg Baptist Association kicked us out because of our open membership policy. So the congregation took the moment to, formally, uh, to formalize that policy with these words. There is no right or ceremony, the inclusion of which can make a confessor eligible or ineligible for membership in the church. And all such ritual requirements must be reinterpreted in the light of the value of human personality and the true nature of the church. It's almost 
impossible. As we look around this sanctuary today, to remember that there was a time when Myers Park Baptist Church was not open to all. There was a time when we were not open to all Christians unless they were baptized by emergent. There was a time when we were not open to all races and ethnicities. There was a time when we were not open to women serving on the board of deacons. There was a time when we were not open to Jews and Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, or people of other faiths joining our fellowship. There was a time when we were not open to atheists, agnostics, or people of non-faith backgrounds. There was a time when we were not open to LGBTQIA plus people receiving the sacrament of marriage. There was a time when we were not open to immigrants and their struggle for survival. There was a time when we were not open to all races, genders, sexualities, and abilities of people serving as clergy and ministers on our staff. But my, oh my, how things have changed. And praise God they have. Praise God. Today is the 81st anniversary of Myers Park Baptist, and for 81 years we have been a people on a journey of faith, discovering our freedom to become new creatures, striving to be faithful stewards of our lives and the world, a journey of sustaining a critical examination of scripture and belief and ritual, seeking to interpret as to the best of our ability God's presence and activity in the world, a journey of accepting controversy as a reality of our life together and as an opportunity for growth toward maturity, a journey of being open to all new light, open to all people, closed to none. We have been on a journey of inclusivity, spirituality, community, and justice for 81 years, and on this anniversary Sunday, we give glory and gratitude to God for this church for its founders, for its history, for its members and its mission. What would our lives be like if it weren't for Myers Park Baptist Church? What would Charlotte be like? What would Baptist life in this country be like? What would America be like if there was no Myers Park Baptist Church? An even more startling question for us to ask on this sacred day is, what would Myers Park Baptist Church be like if it had never changed? There's a distinct pattern in our history of our members and our clergy recognizing a barrier or a boundary or a limit that exists to full participation, affirmation, or belonging in our community of faith and working to do everything in our power to tear it down or remove it. And there are many words for this that people have come up with over the years. Some call it expansive inclusivity. Others call it boundless hospitality. Others, an ever-widening sense of belonging. Whatever it's called, we have, as a people, knowingly or unknowingly, modeled ourselves and our mission as a, as a community. After the words of Albert Einstein, who said, our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. And also Mother Teresa who wrote, the problem with the world is that we draw our circle too small. The openness of our hearts and minds can be measured by how wide we draw the circle of what we call family. And the poet Rainer Maria Rilke who said, 
I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I will give myself to it. Yet our expansive inclusivity, boundless hospitality, and ever-widening sense of belonging, while modeled after Einstein, Teresa, and Rilke, is rooted first and foremost in the life and teachings of Jesus. And we must never forget that it was Jesus who most fully and beautifully embodied the radical inclusivity and hospitality of God and who called and inspired us to do the same. If our inclusivity is not rooted in the life and ministry of Jesus, we run the risk of becoming nothing more than a liberal social club. I recently saw a tagline for a progressive organization that said, anyone may be a part of us, we welcome and respect the stranger, no prerequisites exist for participation in our community. I thought, wow, that's awesome. I wonder if that's a church, but when I looked more closely, it was the tagline of Burning Man. We could increase membership here if we were more like Burning Man at Myers Park Baptist Church. But we have a different founder and a different mission. We've chosen Draw the Circle Wider as our theme for 2024 because we intentionally seek to grow as individuals and as a church to more fully embody the expansive inclusivity, boundless hospitality, and ever-widening sense of belonging that we see in Jesus. And when we study the life of Jesus, the first thing that we notice in scriptures like today is that engaging in expansive inclusivity is both unpredictable and dangerous. Right out of the gate in Luke's gospel, we discover that when you invite a community to acknowledge the ways they might be excluding others or remove a barrier, boundary, or limit, you very well may be the one that gets excluded or run out of town or thrown off a cliff. It's risky for me to even be speaking with you about this today because the Bible warns that communities do not generally appreciate anyone, especially one of their own, pointing out their blind spots, biases, or prejudices. It is an activity fraught with peril. And so today I'm glad that Myers Park is a relatively flat neighborhood <laughs> and that there are no cliffs nearby. You'll have to come up with something more imaginative. Luke 4 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's a story where Jesus lays out his platform and agenda and mission for his life at the synagogue in his hometown by taking the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and proclaiming, the Spirit of the Lord has brought me and anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for those who are oppressed, to initiate the year of the Lord called Jubilee. And in most churches in America today, if you simply read those words, it will be enough to get you called a Marxist and run out of the church. Jesus' explicit agenda of justice for the poor and sick and imprisoned and oppressed is controversial in its own right. But the amazing thing in this story is that nobody in the synagogue in Nazareth had a problem with it. Jesus even said, I'm the fulfillment of that scripture, rather boldly. Yet it says, notice, everyone spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. They even said that he was smarter than his own daddy. Why didn't they try to throw Jesus off the cliff immediately after his sermon on Isaiah? 
It's because they were Galileans, suffering themselves under the weight of King Herod and the temple system and the Roman occupation. They were the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed that we see in Isaiah 61, which means that Jesus' words were good news to them. They were longing for abundance and for healing and recovery and freedom and release. They were eagerly awaiting the Spirit to anoint someone to come to them with the good news of liberation. Their status and standpoint and situation in life meant that Jesus' sermon was nothing but amazing grace for them. But Jesus wouldn't leave well enough alone, would he? No, he went on in conversation with the Nazareans to explain to the people in the synagogue there the practical application of his agenda, saying, this good news I've been appointed and anointed to bring to you, good Jewish folk here in Galilee, it's also for all people, even the Gentiles. This is why, even though there were many widows in Israel during a famine, God sent Elijah to the widow at Zarephath in Sidon, the Canaanite. And even though there were many lepers in Israel, God sent Elisha to Naaman the Syrian. And these two brief illustrations incensed the Nazareans. Luke tells us that when they heard this, they were filled with rage, got up, drove him to the edge of town, took him to a hill and tried to hurl him off a cliff. It's never the scripture that makes people angry. It's always the interpretation. It's never the words on a page that make people angry. It's always the application. The scriptures and the words of Jesus always sound like amazing grace to everybody until you try and tell folks what it might mean for their lives today in the 21st century. When you do that, then watch out. Words that sound like amazing grace one minute can get you killed the next. When Jesus told the people of Nazareth the good news of healing, recovery, freedom, and release was also coming for their enemies to the north and the east, they said, I don't think so, Jesus. And they tried to kill him. His agenda sounded like good news on paper when they could keep it to themselves and for themselves, but as soon as it jumped off the page and started marching out to include the Canaanites and Syrians, the Nazareans got very angry and violent. Here at Myers Park, we've always been very good with words. We've been saying we're open to all since 1966. We have one of the most beautiful church covenants ever written. We have 247 pages in a published history about our church. We have well-written statements on the free pulpit, LGBTQIA inclusivity, racism toward African Americans, and immigration. We have theologies of worship and stewardship. We have marketing slogans galore. We have a mission and a vision. We have four core values. We have 186 pages of governing documents. We have an impressive website. We have an eight to 10 page order of worship every Sunday. We have a lengthy weekly news that comes out Sunday afternoon. We have thousands of written materials in our archives. At Myers Park Baptist Church, we love, love our words. But what happens when we try to take the words that we've written and apply them? We struggle. That's where the struggle happens. 
Why? Because everything about living together in an inclusive community of faith is easier said than done, easier written than live, easier in theory than it is in practice. The problem is not and never will be the words, but that words on a page do not themselves draw the circle wider. Expansive inclusivity, boundless hospitality, ever-widening sense of belonging, that thing, that only happens when we act as our founders and former generations did in the past. It requires people to do the hard work of seeking out any barrier or boundary that exists to full participation and affirmation and belonging in our community and doing everything in our power to tear it down. Drawing the circle wider requires the courage and the bravery to take decisive action on a consistent basis against the structures of exclusion and marginalization that exist within our fellowship, whether they are implicit or explicit, known or unknown, seen or unseen. When I was called to be the pastor of my first church, Commonwealth Baptist in Alexandria, I knew we needed to increase the membership there. And I felt it would be inappropriate and unholy for me to just simply pray to God for church growth. That feels kind of gross. So I came up with a prayer that I thought I could pray with integrity. And I prayed, dear God, please send us the people we need. Please send us the people we need. All I have to say is be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. God answered my prayer and sent the church a bunch of gay Pentecostals and lesbian evangelicals who had not yet deconstructed their faith in any way. The very two first families that came were literally a gay Pentecostal couple from Georgia and lesbian evangelicals from Virginia. That's who came, the very first two couples. And they showed up in Sunday school demanding that people in the church give 10% of their income to the church, singing praise music in worship, and engage, one said, we need to engage in 40 hours of consecutive prayer. And the liberals in our church did not know what to do with themselves. <laughs> they wholeheartedly welcomed these new members' sexuality. That wasn't a problem for them. But they struggled to accept their theology, their spirituality, their faith. It all worked out in the end. The church is doing Great now, but the experience revealed some blind spots in our quest for inclusivity that we had to address. Myers Park Baptist, who are our Canaanites and Syrians? Who are our gay Pentecostals and lesbian evangelicals? Who are the people outside our circle? Who are the people we are implicitly, unknowingly, or unintentionally excluding? Have we thought about who are the people who we're offering welcome to, but not full affirmation and belonging just yet? Who are the people that we've welcomed into the body, but have not yet given a seat at the table of leadership? Who are the people that we're keeping at bay and holding at arm's length and expecting to be comfortable with second-class church membership? Who are the people that we're inviting in but at the same time asking them to assimilate to our church culture to be a really accepted instead of welcoming their culture as an expansive blessing for our community of faith. How can we continue to draw the circle wider? The synagogue in Nazareth wasn't built 
for Judeans. It wasn't built for Canaanites. It wasn't built for Syrians. It wasn't built for Greeks. It wasn't built for Romans. It was built for Galileans, specifically Nazarene Galileans. But Jesus invited them in this text to consider that the good news of healing and recovery and freedom and release was for everyone and called them to draw the circle wider. To do that, he said, they'd have to start by thinking about who the synagogue was not built for and then work together to tear down and remove all the boundaries that separated Jews from Gentiles and people from community. In fact, we learn later in Acts and other places in the New Testament that that is exactly where the church was born, in integrated synagogues across the Roman world where Jews and Gentiles broke down the dividing walls of hostility between them and joined together as equals to follow Jesus and change the world. We know that Myers Park Baptist was built by and for southern, free, educated, well-to-do white men and their wives and children. It was not built for the poor, captives, the blind, or the oppressed. It was not built for people of color, LGBTQI folks, immigrants, older adults, disabled people, the neurodivergent, or the mentally ill. It was not just the building that I'm talking about, which is obvious, but the governance structure, the ministries, the liturgy, the community, the culture as well. And that means if we want to continue to be people who draw the circle wide like our founders and every generation of members that has come before us, we need to reverse engineer the focus of our expansive inclusivity and boundless hospitality and ever-widening sense of belonging to be first and foremost on the people who the church was not built for and begin there. We have made great strides with many other groups over the years, but the question remains, will the poor and the divergent and the disabled ever feel true, full inclusion and belonging in our fellowship? I don't want to have nightmares like George Heaton about people being excluded. I believe our members had it right in 68. There is no rite or ceremony, the inclusion of which can make a person eligible or ineligible for membership in our church. And all such ritual requirements must be reinterpreted in the light of the value of human personality. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that should ever cause anyone to feel excluded in Myers Park Baptist Church. Anything that is a boundary, a barrier, or limit to inclusivity must be reinterpreted in the light of Jesus' ministry to the poor and marginalized and pressed and then torn down. We cannot be content with the size of yesterday's circle when there are people on the margins in need of love and belonging today. We've always been, in every generation, a people who were willing to pull up the stakes move to the edges of our fellowship and push it out just a little bit further and draw the circle a little bit wider. We've always been a people who live our lives in widening circles that reach out across the world who say, I may not complete this one in my lifetime, but I will give myself to it today, here, and now. And now we need to be those people more than ever so that we can become the church for the people the church was not built for. Drawing the circle wider is always risky. It is always dangerous work, filled with the unexpected, fraught with peril. But it has been the lifeblood of our community for 81 years. And 
That means the good news is we've done it so many times before that with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it again. Amen.